We are keeping democracy alive. X for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we're seeing is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And one man always credits himself as a terrific deal maker. Remember candidate Donald Trump campaigning against the evils of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement? He called it the worst trade deal and pledged to rework it to the benefit of American workers, many of whose jobs were sent to countries where workers are paid less and there are fewer environmental protections. Not just Republicans, but many liberal Democrats have been quite critical of NAFTA for that reason. Of course, many of us had our doubts about Trump's true intentions on NAFTA, and of course, our doubts are being proven right, at the very least, after unleashing Scott Pruitt to intentionally cripple the Environmental Protection Agency, and then pulling the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Agreement, Trump appears now to be continuing his record of attack on the planet in the upcoming NAFTA renegotiation. Unions didn't like NAFTA, which was negotiated by the Clinton administration, and they are sure to feel even more negatively toward the proposed Trump revisions. A new NAFTA would expand globalization by breaking down national barriers to digital trade, which didn't exist in 1994, but is now the cutting edge of the global economy. Labor regulations, intellectual property rights, regulatory practices would all be up for renegotiation under a new NAFTA. Conservatives who traditionally value local and state control over distant federal or corporate decision-making may also find a lot to dislike in the Trump-NAFTA revision. There's frankly much of it to not like by so many interest groups. Today on Keeping Democracy Alive, we'll focus on the environmental aspects. To shine a light on what remains largely hidden from public view is this half hour's guest, Bill Warren, Senior Trade Analyst for Friends of the Earth. Thank you for being with us, Bill. Well, thank you very much. So much news has been blasting out at us on a daily basis, usually unintentionally, by the Trump administration. Practically no one has heard about the significant announcement on July 17th by Trump's U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer. Uh, Friends of Earth issued a statement uh, in response to that saying that the Trump revision, quote, reinforces concerns that Trump Uh, that that Trump uh, plans to use trade agreements to hamstring effective environmental regulation related to food and chemical safety, sustainable family farms, and biotechnology, among many others, end of quote. My sense is that it fits in quite nicely with what's become a general pattern of setting aside any concern 
on the oh so old-fashioned notion of the common good in favor of what's good for the short-term profits of a few corporate interests. Tell us, please, Bill, about the, the battle lines between environmental and public health regulations on one side and global corporate interests on the other and where the Trump administration is on this. Well, the Trump administration has uh, declared war on the planet, uh, as you noted. I mean, the yeah, really. striking examples are the... Uh, Scott Pruitt uh, deregulation uh, campaign at the Environmental Protection Agency. It's meant to, to gut and destroy the agency. And, of course, uh, uh, his withdrawal from the Paris Climate Agreement, which uh, appalled people and world leaders uh, everywhere. So it, it's pretty clear exactly where he's coming from. And now it's... Uh, Pretty clear to all of us that uh, he's uh, you know changed his message on uh, the North American Free Trade Agreement and is now going to uh, incorporate provisions of the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, uh-huh. which uh, he discarded for politi- expedient political reasons, and to uh, uh, essentially have uh, the TPP with fewer countries, <laughs> three, uh, with, uh, just Canada the U.S. and Mexico, but then he intends to use this model in a variety of other negotiations as well. Oh, that's so terrific. Under pressure from we the people, and sometimes that works, Congress ultimately turned against Obama's Trans-Pacific Partnership in large part because it was being drafted in secret. The process itself, is the new proposed NAFTA being created in a similar process with uh, with uh, NAFTA which we have been with the NAFTA we have been living is it? I, I don't know if it's open, more closed now or was it closed back then? And are parties with legitimate interests in the final version able to participate in the drafting of the revision of NAFTA? Now the uh, only uh, outside players who can participate in the drafting uh, uh, of the new NAFTA will be approximately 600 uh, corporate uh, representatives who've been uh, deigned to be uh, uh, cleared advisors uh, to the office of the U.S. uh, Trade Representative, and they receive all the documents that are, the negotiating documents that are hidden from the press and the public and and, uh, environmental and labor groups. Um, It's it's pretty outrageous that the uh, uh, you know the foxes are in the uh, yeah, in the like. hen house, and the, you know they have a, a, a legal basis to uh, li- literally write the, the deal for the benefit of their uh, paymasters uh, on Wall Street and uh, in big uh, corporate suites around the country. Yeah, nothing like draining the swamp of the bad guys, right? J- just briefly, what is Friends of the Earth? I mean, I'm fairly familiar with it, but if you could just give a brief description of who you guys are and what your focus is. Well, uh, Friends of the Earth is the largest environmental group in the world by membership in wow. over 70 countries uh, on, on every continent. And uh, we've very much taken uh, an international perspective. Uh, we're not the largest group in the United States. That would clearly be Sierra Club. And right. there are a couple of other uh, big ones like the Natural Resources Defense Fund. But we're, you know, we're in the top five or so in terms of of membership, we have a uh, uh, at least uh, contacts 
digitally with uh, over a million uh, environmental activists who uh, respond to our alerts, and then increasingly we, we are engaged at the street level uh, uh-huh. in organizing as well. So um, we're an important player, but maybe not the most important environmental player in the, uh-huh. the United States, but we're, we're climbing like a greasy pole. <laughs> That's pretty funny. (laughs) If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Bill Warren, Senior Trade Analyst for Friends of the Earth, and we're talking about NAFTA, the Trump version of NAFTA. And in terms of environmental threats, what specific activities are of greatest concern to Friends of the Earth in the new NAFTA that's being drafted? Well, we're very concerned because what distinguishes these trade deals from, let's say, uh, international environmental or climate agreements, is that they can be very effectively uh, enforced uh, under international law. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the NAFTA, the proposed TPP, uh, our ex- uh, existing trade agreements with places like Korea and, and Colombia and so forth, uh, 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 one set of so-called dispute resolution uh, and this covers most but not all of the chapters, it allows one country to sue another country before a corporate-dominated tribunal. Uh-huh. And, and uh, if this uh, corporate-dominated tribunal decides that uh, one country has, uh, has uh, intruded upon uh, uh, the property rights of, uh, of these corporations, then uh, uh, those decisions can be enforced with retaliatory tariffs, for example, if uh, uh, if uh, the state of New Hampshire wanted to engage in some kind of land use regulation for a pristine area, and uh, and a developer uh, out of uh, Canada uh, wanted to big uh, build a, a big resort or uh, or maybe a timbering business on, on that land, and they felt like their property rights had been violated, and uh, and if. Uh, Canada brought that suit against the United States, and and if they won, which would be probable, I think, yeah. then the United States uh, would have to, and the state of New Hampshire would have to go back and revise their laws under the threat of having uh, their uh, local uh, exporting industries penalized with uh, uh, crippling tariffs, or even in some cases for those companies to lose their intellectual property rights of, you know, things like patents and copyrights and so forth. But even more uh, dangerous are the investment tribunals, which allows uh, wealthy individuals and uh, giant multinational corporations to directly sue a nation state, in this case the United States, Mexico, or Canada. And uh, uh, there are very uh, strict uh, protections of property rights over human rights and uh, principles of democracy. These investment tribunals can levy unlimited punitive damages against the taxpayers of the country. In other words, uh, damage awards to come out of the public treasury that can be in the millions or in some cases billions of dollars. It's uh, it's perhaps the most frightening thing about it. It's a little technical, but it's important to get your head around it because this is a really big difference. This is a world government that's run by the uh, uh, global corporations. Absolutely amazing. And I would think people who call themselves conservatives and and lord knows in recent years people who call themselves conservatives are not conserving anything at all in fact they're really really radical but i would think a true conservative would be 
concerned, very, very concerned about this. I mean, the you know, what is a basis of conservatism? Local control, having some, you know, say over what goes on in your community. The people most affected can participate in that decision-making process. And the idea of uh, seemingly, I mean, the word tyrannical comes to mind here, quite literally, and it's a strong word to use, that there could be this force which is beyond the reach of the law that we, the people, and our governments have to uh, do whatever they say. Is, is that too much of a stretch? I mean, it sounds like that's exactly what we're talking about here. Absolutely. And there are some principled conservatives who are opposed to these agreements on these grounds. And Trump pretended that that was his concern, too. And, of course, it, yeah. it, you know, it's been documented now that that wasn't his concern. But just for one example, uh, the late uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice William Rehnquist, who's about as right-wing and conservative as you, uh, uh, yeah. you might come across, uh, reportedly was very, very disturbed by these investment tribunals in terms of what it meant to uh, the rule of the law and uh, to constitutional principles. I mean, what happens the first time uh, the United States is hit with a multi-billion dollar damage award for a decision of the U.S. Supreme Court. It hasn't happened yet, but it's, it can happen and probably will happen. And there are a few of those people who are still around. But what we see more of are these uh, uh, people who are pretending to be uh, traditional constitutional conservatives but uh, are really only demagoguing the issue in order to win elections, uh, particularly in rural America oh, yeah. and in Rust Belt America. And uh, once they get in power, you know, it's uh, bait and switch. You know, in other words, they uh, uh, they weren't sincere. Yeah, they weren't sincere. We've had a bait and switch, and I'm thinking an, another term is uh, revolving door. I mean, these these adjudicatory arbitration bodies, the membership of them under uh, the new uh, NAFTA and the old Trans-Pacific Partnership, it looks kind of like a revolving door for corporate lawyers who could be on this adjudicatory arbitration body one day and then sit as lawyers for corporations like really quickly thereafter does that oh that's absolutely the way it works and this has been documented by uh, empirical research by a wonderful law professor in toronto named gus van harten who has shown that the, that the people who make these tribunal decisions the members of the tribunal come from the fanciest white shoe law firms on wall street and sometimes the city of london and they uh, you know they're often quite wealthy themselves and you know one day their corporate plaintiff's attorney and the next day their judge it's outrageous and and he's actually uh, done the quantitative research to show that the bias isn't just theoretical but real I can only imagine. I hate to imagine. I can't believe we are where we are. Uh, tell us about, there's something called the technic, Technical Barriers to Trade Chapter. Well, what is that? Yeah. Huh? Well, ahead. you know, one reason, they hide behind a smokescreen of legal gobbledygook. <laughs> uh, technical Barriers to Trade really means the chapter on rolling back public interest regulations uh, uh, ah. related to chemicals, pesticides, and, and also food uh, labeling standards. And, uh, you know, this is really dangerous because uh, there are a lot of dangerous chemicals out there on the marketplace that are very closely associated with breast cancer, autism, infertility, um, illnesses, 
uh, even gender disorders in terms of hormones that may affect uh, a person's uh, sexual identity or, or an animal's sexual identity uh, or and capacity to, to procreate. And uh, we don't effectively regulate uh, chemicals in this country, although some states do, and particularly yeah. uh, California. Yes, good and certainly there would be a hope in the future that we would have the kind of chemical regulations they have in, in Europe and other places. And what would happen under the technical barrier to trade uh, chapter is that DuPont would get uh, exactly what they want, which is a, a firewall against effective uh, uh, regulation of these dangerous uh, chemicals. Unbelievable. It's just amazing. But, I mean, friends of the earth, you guys got the credibility. You know what you're doing. You do the... Uh, the research, and, and this is real stuff. And again, it's been largely buried by the, the Russia stories and all the just incredible things that are coming out of the Trump administration. But this could, I mean, food safety. You know, I, I'm sort of a student of history, and I know that in the progressive age, in the early part of the 20th century, the federal government finally got into food safety, protecting citizens from, you know, pure greed-driven uh, slipshod, dangerous, unhealthy processing of foods, including meats. Consumers around the world now expect food to be, at the very least, labeled as to what is in it and, and, and how what we are about to eat is processed. How might uh, Trump's proposed NAFTA uh, changes affect food safety and animal welfare standards? That's right. The, the food labeling uh, could be... Uh Challenge, but also very basic standards of, uh, uh, you know, related to things like bacterial uh, contamination, <laughs> you know, ba- basic sanitation, uh, uh, the capacity to do border inspections for, uh, uh, you know, chemicals and disease and everything else in terms of food imports should all be uh, uh, hit by, again, to use the, the trade law gobbledygook, the sanitary and phytosanitary measures chapter. So they use all these technical terms in order to disguise what they're about. Absolutely. It, it, it still is kind of amazing. And it's, it's so convenient to have all this other stuff going on because people, frankly, haven't been paying a lot of attention to it. Again, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is called Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a heavy lift. You've got to get involved yourself as a listener. And our guest today is Senior Trade Analyst for Friends of the Earth, Bill Warren. I wanted to ask about... Bees. In recent times, yep. concern has been raised about the massive die-off of bees, which are vital to so many plants and food crops. In what ways could a new NAFTA threaten efforts to stop this destruction of bees? There's some neonic, I think it is called, chemical, something like that? Neonicotinoid. I can't pronounce it either. Neonic for short. Neonic pesticides. And Friends of the Earth has been... A leader on this, we have a wonderful staff scientist out in Berkeley who works on this, and and it's it's pretty clear that, that these neonic pesticides are causing uh, the, uh, the sharp decline of bees, and then this is not just a, a matter of saving the bees. We all depend upon food crops that are pollinated by bees. Yes. So if the bees die, human beings are in trouble, and the the, the whole ec- ecosystem is thrown out of whack because uh, it's a threat to pollinators, and, and pollination is, uh, you know, just a real key to the whole ecosystem. So who's who's driving this? I mean, Trump, frankly, I don't think has the, uh, you know, 
the brains to do it. Who, what, what interests are, are driving this? Are, is there a particular bad guy that maybe if people find out who they are, they can try to put some pressure on them? Well, it's it's all it's all the the big pesticide companies like Sygenta uh-huh. and so forth, and Sygenta, Monsanto, and uh, the, the usual uh, list of suspects. Right. But they're they're literally uh, on the inside writing uh, these trade deals, and furthermore, they they want to uh, uh, not only use these tribunals, but also to set up so-called regulatory review processes, where corporate lobbyists and and trade bureaucrats would review environmental and, and, and health regulations before they could be uh, published and considered by the public. And they, they also want to use uh, a particularly phony kind of cost-benefit analysis oh, yeah. uh, to stop, uh, to stop uh, new regulation of pesticides, chemicals, or you name it. Yeah, I thought that was interesting in reading over some of your, uh, the, the stuff from Friends of the Earth about, you know, if it's not absolutely proven science... And you know how that can be used as as a as a barrier to uh, to avoid doing anything. And maybe you can explain that a little bit. Well, yeah, this this isn't real cost benefit analysis. Cost benefit exactly. analysis is very legitimate if you have, you know, like a construction project, and you know you have to figure out what the what the engineering and construction costs are compared sure. to the stream of income that the uh, uh, that the uh, project would generate. Sure. So this is something that came out of civil engineering. And uh, it's uh, inappropriate, especially uh, as it's jimmied uh, into the corporate cost-benefit analysis process, because they use a lot of uh, made-up numbers uh, to uh, decide, uh, you know, uh, on balance uh-huh. whether uh, it's it's economically efficient. And what that means as well is that uh, you know they try to attribute a price or the value of human life or animal life or the ecosystem, and these are yeah. quite arbitrary numbers that they Jeez. come up with. Oh and, as, for example, human life would uh, be measured by uh, one's expected income stream over the rest of their life. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't strike me as a, a, a very good measure of the value of a human life. And it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, a, it's a lot of uh, it's a mathematical shell game. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, among, among many aspects. Well, I, I wanted to find out about labor. I mean, one of the things that, that Trump campaigned on anyway was that jobs are being shipped overseas, and that's something that people can understand, uh, you know, because it, there's they can pay less and there's fewer environmental protections. I have to assume that this uh, these proposed revisions to NAFTA uh, isn't really going to help. Yet another shell game isn't going to help uh, bring American jobs back here. That's that's absolutely right, and uh, you can see the uh, press releases uh, from the Steelworkers Union, for example. I uh-huh. mean, you know, Trump pretended to be the great friend of the steelworkers, but now he's stabbing them in the back. And it's the same way with uh, industrial workers all over the United States. He was he was not sincere, and uh, and uh, there are not going to be any effective uh, yeah. protections of, of American jobs coming out of this NAFTA renegotiation. And one of the things I understand is that uh, the new NAFTA might actually force governments to use our tax dollars, yours and mine, to pay corporations and wealthy investors for the cost of complying with environmental and other public interest safeguards. That's accurate, too, I assume. <laughs> well, that's the, that's the investment chapter. Yes. That I was telling you about, that, that they can... They can literally uh, uh, collect. I mean, some countries have been hit with uh, three, four, five billion dollar judgments. 
my God. And those are small countries who can't afford it at all. But, you know, $5 billion of our taxpayer money is not something that should be handed away to uh, a greedy corporation through this uh, kangaroo court process of uh, investment litigation. All right. What can be done? I mean, are there members of Congress who are who are getting hip to this? What can be done about this? It's, it's well, not that's seen. right. There, uh, you're seeing a lot of resistance on the uh, Democratic side uh, in Congress, and it remains to be seen how many principled conservatives will be willing to uh, uh, stand up to Trump yeah. and. Uh, uh, and uh, I haven't seen a lot of uh, backbone uh, on the on the part of uh, so-called conservative purists yeah. when Trump has done things that uh, are not conservative at all, but r- rather radical or yeah. just random or incompetent. Well, if people are so inclined to write letters to their member of Congress, what can they say? Are there numbers they can refer to, or what can be done? I mean, if they contact you guys, Friends of the Earth, there be assistance there? Yeah, I can be of, of help. Uh, my uh, uh, email address is www.aren at foe.org, or people can give me a call at 202-222-0746, and you can also find our our website right. uh, uh, on the Internet and on Facebook. You can see our Facebook page. And uh, we have uh, Twitter feeds, and uh, you know we, we we can communicate on social media and uh, so pressure and can be that. pressure can be put on members of Congress right now. It's not too late, right? No, no, I, I think things are uh, actually. I'm pretty optimistic we can stop this. Oh, excellent! <laughs> I, because I think that uh, you know there were a certain a minority uh, of Democrats who. Uh, who pushed the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, you know, so kind of corporate business-oriented Democrats who were uh, uh, supporting the Obama administration on this. I I think some of those are going to be lost. And uh, I think that there will be a a few Bill Rehnquist conservatives who will not drink the (laughs) Kool-Aid. I hope so. So uh, pressure does matter. People's voices do absolutely matter. And it's very good to hear that this ain't a done deal yet, that public pressure can help. Thank you so much. And, and the, the I just want to make sure that people get the website that people can go to. Yeah, it's uh, I, I don't go to the website very often. It's www.foe.org. Ah, foe.org. Thank you so much. And uh, let's hope... Uh, Something called the common good can uh, prevail over this. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Let's see if we can stop this deal from going down. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Since it cost a lot to win and even more to lose, you and me by the
Oh, I hate to cut off Jerry's great guitar there. Got to make sure the NAFTA deal does not happen. And we can do it. We can make something out of it. We can make our voices heard and stop this tyranny. We're going to switch gears a little bit to talk about uh, the South. Our guest on this segment of Keeping Democracy Alive writes in The Nation that, quote, Bernie Sanders may be the most popular politician in the country today. But his defeat across the South should have been a wake-up call for what he calls the left, what I call simply traditional Democrats. Journalist Paul Blessed goes on to point out that Bernie Sanders didn't just lose the South in the 2016 Democratic primary, he got destroyed in it, end of quote. The old Confederacy cost Democrats, in my opinion, the strongest candidate uh, for the nomination, which in turn begat President Donald Trump. So we need to look at the South, what happened there, what can be done. As a longtime political observer and pundit myself, I believe it is fair to say that since the North insisted on keeping the South as part of the Union, it is exceedingly difficult, if not impossible, to win the presidency without winning the South. Our guest argues that if progressives pay attention and get the message of the 2016 wake-up call, Paul Blessed says, it will take time, investment, and a commitment to the efforts that are already taking place in the South to turn an historically conservative region into a progressive bastion. And that, he says, victory is within reach. We always appreciate such optimism here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Paul Blessed, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for having me. Paul Blessed is a journalist based in Raleigh, North Carolina, who has written for The Nation, The New Republic, The Outline, Current Affairs, Alternate, and others. And again, thanks for being with us. We always appreciate optimism here. Let's start by dissecting what happened in the Southern primaries in 2016. Most of us have forgotten the margins in those states. How big did the pick of the party establishment win by? So uh, in all of the former Confederate states, um, Hillary Clinton won every single one. Uh, The only states that could sort of ostensibly be considered the South that Sanders won would be West Virginia, um, which is a Union state during the Civil War, and uh, Oklahoma. Um, So both of those states are, you know, more of a more rural states, uh, a bigger white population than than states like North Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama. there, there's a lot of things that, that went wrong for him. Uh, number one was that he just sort of ran out of time. I spoke to Justin Bamberg, who is a South Carolina representative or state representative who um, supported Sanders in the primary, and he pointed out, you know, this is consolidating the support of, uh, you know, church, black churches in the South was something that Clinton, you know, started doing, you know, who who knows how long ago. I mean, it, this, right. this is a relationship that goes back to even, you know, the Bill Clinton campaign. Right. Um, well, how much? So, what What were some of the percentages that he lost by? It wasn't, you know, single digits. What were? I, mean, I don't know if you have some of those states' numbers in front of you. Yeah. So he lost Mississippi. I think the number was sixty six points. Uh, Clinton won like eighty five percent of the vote. Um, he lost big in Alabama. Um, he lost big in Louisiana as well. Uh, you know, the states that were that were a little bit closer were states like North Carolina. 
um, which, you know, uh-huh. not coincidentally, I don't think, uh, was the last uh, primary of the old Confederacy. Uh, it was in March 15th. Um, and he, he lost by double digits even then. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was sort of a blowout, um, yeah, sort you of. know, from, from the very beginning. So Bernie, in my, I mean, from one of my reading of it and, you know, I will, uh, acknowledge I was a Bernie supporter. I was a Bernie delegate may have, yeah. he, uh, he, Bernie may have technically won the first vote in Iowa, but that was, it was reported that the Hillary Clinton campaign squeaked by him. Be that as it may. Then in the first in the nation primary here in New Hampshire, where this is being recorded, Bernie, I dare say, kicked butt. His margin was a stunning 22 percent. I was hoping I was hoping for 15 percent, 22 percent over Hillary Clinton. And uh, she said, oh, well, he was from a neighboring state. Nobody knew him at all here in this start. I know I know Hillary started out the race with a 100 percent name recognition and Bernie had zero even in New Hampshire and I thought his win here might give him significant media momentum going into the south what what was it was it just name recognition and the high regard that that uh, African Americans in the south had developed over time for Bill Clinton what do you think uh, were the factors that made such a total blowout of Bernie in the south so I think it's a lot of factors. I, I think that name recognition is is very important. Um, I think that the fact that all of the primaries in the South were uh, early on, um, and it was it was hard for him to sort of get a foothold. You know, by April or so, like let's say that you know some of these Southern primaries had been on in like April or May after he'd won some primaries, uh, he might have done a little bit better. You know, I, I don't think he would have won a state like Mississippi, but it would have been a lot closer, I think, than you know the sixty six percent. Um, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of reasons that it, it didn't happen. I, I, I myself was also a Bernie Sanders supporter in the primary. Sure. Um, but I think that, you know, the fact that the campaign, the place that the campaign started from was sort of one of, uh, you know, not a protest candidate, but to expand, you know, the field of ideas in the primary. And I think that because of that, once they realized that they had a chance of winning some of these states like New Hampshire, I mean, it's a calculated decision that's made. I mean, if they, you know, it's sort of a, you know, if you if you focus on the South, he might have not won some of these states like New Hampshire by as much as he did. He might not have won um, Michigan, uh, which was, you know, Fantastic. one of the biggest upsets that's happened in recent primary history. Oh, I love so, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot of, you know, it's not all on him. I don't think. I think that you know the fact that Clinton has been such a presence in the Democratic Party for so many years. Right. Um, you know, consolidated the support of you know people who are instrumental in the DNC, people who are you know like you know influential politicians in you know the Senate and the House. You know, Sanders didn't have that kind of support, um, so it was it was tough for him to sort of break through. Yeah, for sure. He, the establishment obviously had picked their candidate uh, many, many years ago. And we're going to talk as, as the discussion goes on for the next uh, 20 minutes or so about, uh, you know, a lot of people said, oh, he's too liberal. A liberal can't win. Now, you, and, and we'll, this will come up as we go along. Your prescription for successfully pulling the South back into progressive electoral territory calls for, quote, organizing around people, not elections, and that in between major elections, there's nothing. 
there's a real danger in only building a structure around elections, end of quote. Please say more about what you mean on this. I think it's important. So I think that, you know, it's it's sort of organizing around, uh, you know, not just people, but ideas. Um, and, you know, we sort of have this, this mindset that election years are, you know, at, at best every two years and at worst every four years. And then that's when we have to start organizing. No, that's not the case. I think that, you know, in 2017, we need to be organizing for things. I mean, the fact that in California, California, you know, people are organizing for single payer. Um, that's, uh, you know, the DSA has been instrumental in that out there. Um, I think that, you know, something in the South that has been a good model for that has been the moral movement uh-huh, um, yeah. that Reverend Barber of the NAACP, formerly of the NAACP here, um, you know, has started. And it's a coalition of groups not just the NAACP, but of labor rights groups, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, immigration groups, civil rights groups, um, you know, pro-education groups. It's just sort of, you have to sort of tie in the fortunes of all these progressive causes to each other. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, people have sort of this, uh, this notion of what the left is, but I think that, you know, an organization like ADAPT that's organizing against, uh, you know, the, the terrible health care bill, I, I think that those that's sort of a model for where progressives for where the left needs to go. Um, you know, just sort of unifying around these causes and organizing around them. Uh, so, you know, when people, when you, you run candidates, uh, people are going to remember that and they're going to remember that you were there in their communities fighting for them. Um, so it's, it's this sort of idea that, you know, those things cause electoral wins and it's not the other way around. Yeah, and and you know, there's it's between elections now, and I have to say, a, a good friend of mine, African American friend, was looking at Hillary going into the black churches down south and saying, "Oh, come on, don't people get this? I mean, don't they see she's just showing up now?" But what can be done now in between elections in the south? I hear that uh, barber shops, in particular, are places for where people gather to talk. What what else can be going on now, well in between election times? Well, I think number one is health care. I mean, people are, there is a very real chance that a lot of people could lose their health care, and that's the, that includes the South. And I think that, you know, going into people's communities and, you know, sort of, uh, you know, supporting the efforts that are already being done there, but also sort of letting people know, you know, this is, this is something that could affect your family. You know, your health care premiums could go up a lot. You could lose your health care altogether. Um, so I think that, you know, healthcare is going to be a very important issue to organize around over the next uh, couple of years. Um, and, you know, the, the fact is that single payer would be the remedy for that. Of course it is. Um, so it, it's going in, explaining your ideas, uh, supporting the efforts, more importantly, supporting the efforts that are already going on, like Black Lives Matter in the South. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things that are, you know, traditional progressive causes, but for some reason, you know, progressives haven't, you know, mm-hmm. organized around or unified around these issues. Um, so it's, you know, supporting the organizing work uh, and not just the electoral work. Organizing, not just electoral. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Live, Bert Cohen here. Our guest is Paul Blessed, a journalist based in Raleigh, Carolina. We're talking about uh, how the old Confederacy might become progressive yet again. And you did mention and the the uh, moral movement led by uh, Reverend Dr. William Barber. 
not everybody knows about that. Uh, talk about the power of that movement. Is it uniting people of, of different uh, backgrounds in it? And I wonder what yeah. potential it has for building a strong coalition for the future. Tell us a little bit more about that, please. Sure. Uh, so the moral movement was started uh, in 2006 or 2007 uh, when the Democrats still controlled everything in North Carolina. And, and just as a little bit of background, um, the Democrats basically ran North Carolina from around 1898 to 2010. Um, you know, they were North Carolinians were voting for, you know, Republican Republicans statewide sometimes. Um, but they were the legislature was was gerrymandered towards Democrats. Um, and it was just a situation where, uh, Democrats basically ran everything. So Barber and, and his partners started this movement, uh, back in still when the Democrats were running things and organized for things like the racial justice act, which was a state law, um, that, you know, took into account race when it came to assigning the death penalty in cases, uh, like that. Mm Um, and you know, when the Republicans took over in two, in 2010 and, you know, when Pat McCrory became the governor in 2012, there was just this, like, powerful austerity that they that they placed on North Carolinians, uh, you know, sort of cutting unemployment benefits, cutting school budgets, uh, you know, putting the onus for school budgets on to, you know, the counties and cities in the state, sort of just throwing their weight around and taking out 100 years of frustration in, you know, in a couple of months, whenever the legislature was in session. Um, so as time went on, that movement sort of became stronger. And, you know, 2013, there was a huge uh, spur of media attention. Uh, 2014, same thing. Um, and, you know, the organizing that was done, it, it was it was a march in February, but it was also sort of a movement. And mm-hmm. in North Carolina last year, one of the few success stories nationwide for nationwide for Democrats was the fact that Roy Cooper uh, became the governor uh, by the slimmest of margins, and that owes a lot to HB two, which was the anti-trans, anti-worker bathroom bill, uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. quote unquote. Yeah. Um, and you know there were some other factors in that, but you know. Some of the, the few, you know, in North Carolina, Clinton lost the state by two percentage points. Um, you know, they lost the Senate race here, but the governor race, uh, you know, it, people really came out to vote for, for Roy Cooper, and he, he beat McCrory by the slimness of margins. So, you know, those are the kind of movements that actually produce electoral wins, and Roy Cooper is not in any way on the left or, you know, even a progressive. He's, he's pretty firmly in the center, but the hatred for McCrory uh, and, you know, the divisiveness that he caused because of HB2 and all these different, you know, sort of uh, regressive pieces of legislation that the legislature was causing, that provided an opportunity to organize a coalition of people who, you know, were able to vote him out by 10,000 votes, even at a time when, you know, Trump won the state by a pretty solid margin. Interesting. So there are opportunities there. We're talking about opportunities. And and you write that because of the Democratic Party's virtual disappearance in the Deep South outside of urban areas, the circle of influential voices has gotten tighter. And Bernie Sanders failed to connect with people who I would guess are in that smaller circle of influential voices, uh, the politically powerful older African-Americans. Uh, they are they part of this tight inner circle how how might he have connected with them so i mean it's not that sanders didn't try to connect with 
with black churches in the South and, and, you know, sort of get the support of the African-American community. He did. I mean, one of the people that I talked to in the story, uh, Rob Green, who is a, right. um, he's a doctoral student at the University of South Carolina, told me, you know, I went to one of these meetings where they had sort of a political roundtable with the heads of several influential black churches and Bernie Sanders. And I think that Sanders' message really, you know, the economic justice message is really something that's in line with a lot of, uh, you know, progressive uh, African-American liberals in the South think. Um, You know, a lot of people think that, you know, people in the South, liberal, uh, you know, Democrats in the South are just more progressive. It's not the case. I think, you know, one one of the things that was mentioned to me in the article by Jillian Johnson, who's a Durham city councilwoman, was that, you know, people want somebody who is going to have the best chance of winning in the fall. Right. And because the pro- primaries were so front-loaded in the South, it was hard for Sanders to convince people that, you know, uh-huh. he could actually win in, in an election. I mean, at, at the time that the primaries ended, it wasn't even really sure that Donald Trump was going to be the nominee. For sure. Um, you know, people still were holding out hope that, you know, somebody else could, could take the nomination away from him. Somebody's so it's hard for people to see, I guess, you know, some people to see that, that Sanders was going to actually be able to win in the South. And, you know, sort of that is the narrative around, you know, Clinton is an unbeatable candidate when, you know, put up against, you know, any Republican or or Donald Trump, especially. And obviously it didn't work out that way. Um, But, you know, there, there was this sort of preconceived notion. I think that in future years, uh, the notion of preconceived notions is Mm -hmm. is gone. Uh, You know, there was just (laughs) this like, no, nobody has any sort of idea what's going on in our political system right now. So I think that, you know, these these norms that we have of, you know, a democratic social, an open democratic socialist could never win the nomination. You could never become president has been sort of thrown out the window. I mean, Sanders is the most popular politician in the country now. Absolutely. Um, his support among all, uh, you know, races, and ethnicities and age groups has, has risen since the election. Um you know, he has that name recognition now. If he were to run in 2020, he might be able to consolidate some support in, in places like the South. Uh, but I think that it, it, it's more than just running the same campaign that he did in 2016. I mentioned this in the story, but, you know, Jesse Jackson sort of ran a yes. similar campaign to Sanders back in the 80s, and he won several Southern states, like including Louisiana. Um, I, I think Georgia was one of those states that he won. So he's, you know, he sort of has a model. Sanders has a model. And you know, they just have to adapt that to sort of, you know, go in there and, and convince people in the South that, you know, this is something that will positively impact, impact your lives. I think that the theme, you know, not just in the South, but all across right. uh, the country is you need to build a broad-based working-class coalition. Yes. You can't rely on suburban Republicans to be disgusted by Donald Trump. So you have to focus on working-class you know, the, the entire working class and getting people who have been so disillusioned by the system that they haven't voted in years or they've never voted at all and get them inspired enough to say, look, we can actually affect real political change that's, that's positive, that has a positive impact on your lives. And I think somewhere like the South, where you have this just, you know, this poverty in, in rural areas and you have poverty in urban areas, I think that that's sort of a, you know, ground zero for all of that. Yeah, and they tend to as you say in the article, not even vote and oftentimes vote against their own interests. And I think you're right about, you know, and touching on about the aura of winnability. She had it back then. 
And Bernie just did not. And, and people want to win. And I think, quite frankly, that's one reason Trump did so well is because he kept saying win, win, win. And he appeared to yeah. be a winner of some sort. And people just connect with that. And, and you quote the article in The Nation that you wrote, quotes, uh, as you mentioned, Robert Greene. He said, uh, you know, that throughout postbellum Southern history, racism has been used as a wedge between black and white Southerners who might otherwise have some common ground on key issues. End of quote. And instead of racial divides, you suggest that there are really class divides which have the potential to pull people together. And you point out that, yeah. that, that the rural poverty rate is really high, like 25 percent. Many of them don't vote. Uh, turning out uh, non-voting poor and working class people into reliable voters is a viable strategy, you say, but it requires a plan to make their lives better. I wonder, yeah. do, do you see Democrats doing that now? Are they starting to do that? I mean, the Hillary people, you know, they that wasn't a focus of that them at all. Is, 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 there, is that being talked about now by Democrats? I think the Democrats are trying to move towards a more populist message. Um, I know that they put out that, that better skills, better wages, yes. uh, better jobs plan. Yeah. Um, and, you know, some of the things that they talk about are, are a big improvement. It, it, it shows that they're sort of taking, uh, you know, the the Sanders wing of the Democratic Party seriously. But I think that, you know, yeah. it's still sort of like these like half measures. I mean, if uh -huh. you look at what Jeremy uh -huh. Corbyn has been able to do in right. England, yes. you know, he put forward one of the, you know, by far the most progressive, uh, you know, left manifesto in, in, in many years. Yes. And, you know, he almost won the prime ministership. I mean, it, if you, if you, if you clearly stand for things that are, are, are simple, you know, mm -hmm. not just like, promising people, you know, earn income tax credits or like, you know, uh, free college education for only STEM students or something like that. If you actually say, look, we need free college, we need free Medicare for all. Yes. We need, uh, you know, card check. We need, we need all these things. We need to actually positively stand for what, you know, you know, we, we need to clearly articulate what we're standing for. I think that that is something that people can get behind. Um, you know, I I, yes. I wrote another piece for for Current Affairs uh, that basically took a look at, at Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine's book, um, and uh -huh. the book was just littered with these policy recommendations that nobody in their right mind could understand. That wasn't you know a, a nerd about about politics. I mean, it, it's just these things that are not you know they're not they're not clear. They're just confusing, and it's it, it's not sort of a message that that wins over voters. I mean. Right. You, you know, it, it, you need to actually articulate why you can make lives, people's lives better. And I think that the fact that Trump was able to, you know, if, if he wasn't able to clearly articulate why he was making people's lives better, he was saying it over and over again. Right, right, so I think right. that, you know, that, that caught on with people who were already sort of distrustful of, you know, not just Hillary Clinton, but eight years of Democratic rule. Um, you know, people, you know, even though the recession is technically over, a lot of people are still hurting. Oh, yeah. um, a lot of people are still feeling the effects of even the first Clinton administration. Um, so, you know, I think that, that that plays a big role in it. What, what about diversity? I mean, the, the demographics of the South are changing. Uh, the demographics of the whole country have changed. A lot more Latinos and people from all over the world. Yeah. How, how might they uh, be uh, brought into this uh, this winning coalition, Latinos, white people for that matter? Yeah. Well, I think I think when it comes to, you know, Latino voters, uh, obviously immigration is a huge issue. Um, and I think that 
you know, the fact that you have one openly xenophobic uh, political party that's running everything right now is definitely uh, something that that, you know, the Democrats can the, the Democrats already have a you know pretty natural partner in, in Latino voters and Latino voters already do vote for Democrats by a good margin. Um, I think that it's really just, you know, I think that the social justice aspect of it is important and you can't let up on things like, you know, criminal justice reform um, and sort of like articulating a vision for, you know, moving past like private prisons and and stuff like that. But you also need a solid economic justice message. And I mean, you know, the fact that, you know, it's the old Carville quote, like, you know, it's the economy stupid. You know, it's one of the things that, uh, you know, that that's something that, you know, we, you know, people on the left need to adopt as well. I mean, it, it's pocketbook issues are, are things that need to be stressed uh, in, in the future and, and as well as social justice issues. So I think that, you know, the fact that the fact is, that I think that, you know, I, I don't think you've ever I, I don't mean to say that this is going to be easy by any means. This right. Is take a long time. This is going right. to take decades. Yes. Um, but you have to. And it's nothing that's ever been done before in American history. I mean, you know, the the closest thing we've we've come to this is a New Deal coalition. And as we all know, you know, uh, black voters were not able to vote in large portions of the South during the New Deal coalition Mm -hmm. um, for, you know, a a good amount of it. So, you know, this is something that's going to have to sort of break through these barriers like racism and sort of the weight of history uh, and, you know, sort of. Uh, become this entirely new thing. But I think that, you know, things like, uh, you know, this austerity that just keeps getting pushed on people, the the fact that people might lose their health care, also climate change. I mean, things like, you know, places like Louisiana and Florida are already feeling yeah. the effects of that, and that's just going to get worse. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that there's a lot of opportunities to organize around these issues that will show people, you know, you know, progressives have the answer to this. The Democrat, the centrist Democrats did not have the answer. The Republicans right. sure as hell don't have the answer. Right. But, you know, progressives, the left, we have the answer. Well, I love the old quote uh, from Jim Hightower of Texas. And in Texas, there's only two things in the middle of the road, yellow stripes and dead armadillos. You know, and I think <laughs> you've got to stand up for something. A very interesting observation you make. Victories for racial and economic justice have started in the places where rights have been trampled the most. I wonder if you could talk yep. about that a little bit. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think that you you look at the civil rights movement as as a big example of that. Um, you know, that that started in the South, uh, and it, it sort of grew from there. Um, you know, when you when you have something like Selma, when you have uh, you know the murder of Emmett Till, uh, you, you have these right. issues of Rosa Parks, obviously, you know, these things started in the South, they happened in the South. And, you know, the reaction to that from, you know, the rest of the country was, you know, horror. And then we had the Civil Rights Act. Um, so, you know, I think that this is sort of ground zero for these fights. I mean, racism exists everywhere, obviously. I mean, you, yes. you look at a place like New York where Eric Garner, uh, oh, you know, lost his it's life everywhere. Yes. Uh, and you, you, you know, in places like California that have, you know, really high incarceration rates, you know, right. this is this is a systemic issue. Yes. But in the South, you know, you have this history of this, you know, dating back to, you know, pre-Civil War, and we're still feeling the effects of that. So I think that, you know, the fact that, you know, progressive victories have started in the South for racial justice, and then even if you look at, you know, the Democratic primary in the 80s with, with what Jackson was able to do. Yeah. Um, 
You know, even 2008, I mean, you know, Obama was able to win North Carolina. He was able to win Virginia. Now Virginia is sort of becoming a, you know, Democratic staple. Clinton wanted to spite the big swing towards Trump during the election. Uh, Obama got close. He he won Florida both times. I mean, these are these are places in the South that are, are, you know, still trending towards Democrats. So I think that, you know, it, we're able to if, if we're able to learn from you know what happened you know in in prior years where you know these these really great victories for for racial justice happened you know I, I think that they might be able to build coalitions around yeah. you know uh, you know people of color white people working class people in general and I, I I I often get frustrated at people who say well Bernie didn't win. Let's just give up on the Democrats. Dem exit. That's re- I mean, it's going to take a long time. History does not turn on a dime. It takes a lot of yeah. effort, a lot of heavy lifting. But we can do it. Thank you, Paul Bless. Thanks for being with us and uh, for uh, offering an optimistic note on even the South. Thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Thanks so much for having me. Love to hear from you. Email me, bert at bertcohen.com. Neil Young. <laughs>